0: Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hi. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Earth. We're here to discuss new and old creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today, I'm so excited, Claire, for our topic. What is our topic?
1: We're talking about Dungeons and Dragons or D&D. Woo!
0: We are very big D&D fans and...
1: I feel like we've been counting down to this episode for a while. We
0: have been. So, Claire, for for all the uninitiated out there, (laughs) what is Dungeons & Dragons?
1: Dungeons & Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game that takes place in a medieval fantasy setting. Say what? What now? Let me break it down. (laughs) A tabletop game is a game played at a table. And a role-playing game is when players take on the role of an imaginary character and engage in adventures as said character. In the case of Dungeons & Dragons, one player is called the Dungeon Master or DM, and this player creates and explains the world to the other players. These other players take on individual roles of fantasy characters, such as Human Bard, Elven Monk, Dwarven Wizard, just to name a few examples, yes, all with different skills and proficiencies. They then go through the world the Dungeon Master has created, fighting battles, solving quests, sometimes just shopping, all by using a simple dice mechanic, and most importantly... Their imagination.
0: Their imagination.
1: Now, I'm going to talk about the history of d how it kind of evolved into what it is today, or what it was when it was developed in the 1970s. And Kyle, you're going to talk about...
0: I'm going to talk about uh and as it went through the 80s and 90s and then uh, changed hands in companies.
1: Okay. Well, I guess I'll, I'll take it away. Now, Dungeons & Dragons came out of war games. And a war game is a game where players can recreate famous battles where fates are decided by dice rolls, and one player acts as the referee or judge. And these war games or simulation games go back as far as the ancient Romans. and As far as we have knowledge, I think they probably go back earlier than that. Yeah. yeah. Especially as a, a simulation tool for the army. There's a game called Kriegspiel which was a complex military board game used to train Prussian officers. Also another war game?
0: Chess. Yeah, definitely. Checkers, I guess, too.
1: Now, the war games that I described above are the direct precursor to D&D, and these war games that I'm talking about can be traced back to 1913. And... A certain father of science fiction is given credit for inventing them. Did you know who it was? I I did until I read it. I
0: stumbled upon it in my research as well. and was like, man, you do everything. (laughs) H.G. Wells.
1: (laughs) He released a book called Little Wars, a game for boys of 12 years of age to 150 and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books. Not a fan of the title.
0: Yeah. Come on, Mr. Wells. Mr. Wells.
1: In the book, Wells explains how he and his friend, Jerome Kay, created this game from his child's toy soldiers. They started off, as you do, by firing cannons at each other. And eventually, this turned into a game where they put them on an imaginary battlefield and took turns moving them around to win the battle. The children's toys that they were originally using weren't satisfactory enough, so they ended up building miniature models for the game.
0: Oh my gosh, H. G. Wells invented miniatures? <laughs> I know.
1: And in the book, he talked about how they perfected the rules and then laid out the rules so that others could enjoy the game. And he didn't make this battle out of the blue. He was an admirer of Kriegspiel. But he believed his game was satisfactory because Kriegspiel lacked realism and the unexpected, so this was, like, a better option.
0: Wow. So he thought that his game for kids was a better war game than the one made by the Prussian military to train their officers. Well,
1: yeah, as in a sense it was a game. Gotcha. The Prussian officers, in theory, weren't playing Kriegspiel to have fun. They were playing it to become masters at war. Gotcha. At least that's what I assume. I didn't actually read too far into Kriegspiel. Yeah. So now I'm going to bring us up to Gary Gygax, who is given credit for basically creating Dungeons and Dragons. And there's a little bit of, you know, other people who contributed, of course, and I'll get into that as well. Gygax wanted to be a hero his whole life. As a kid, he would rather be out hunting and exploring, and he hated school. So he dropped out his junior year because who needs it? Eventually, he started working as an insurance underwriter for the Fireman's Fund and also as an adult he discovered war games. He got married, had two kids, but despite adulthood, continued to play war games with his friends in person, and he also played by mail.
0: Yeah, that's how they used to play, um, uh, what's that game you Diplomacy. Played? Diplomacy, Diplomacy. It was by mail.
1: Yes. He was very interested in the dice-rolling aspect of the games and how much a random chance plays in everyone's life. As an insurance writer, evaluating policies and calculating how much things are worth, he saw that firsthand. He loved war games so much that he and his friends made up a World War II tank combat game. But he didn't want his game to be determined by the bell curve that comes from rolling two six-sided dice. So you know when you roll two six-sided dice, the most likely outcome is a seven twos and twelves being the most unlikely outcome. Yes. So instead of rolling dice, he had his players pick a poker chip out of a bag, and the chips were labeled 1 through 20. That way, there was a straight 5% chance of any outcome. Later on, he discovered the 20-sided dice in a school catalog where they made dice out of all shapes.
0: Now, that is pretty genius mm-hmm. and is a great precursor to what D&D becomes, so much rolling a 20-sided die yeah. for that 5% chance. Yes,
1: Exactly. He put together the first Lake Geneva Convention, or Gen Con, which was held in Wisconsin in 1968. And this is where nerds from all over the U.S., even some from Canada, could battle each other in war games. His circle of gamer friends grew, and they introduced Gygax to versions of games that they had tweaked. Now, there was a game he was eventually introduced to called the Siege of Bodenburg. It was a medieval war game that he and his friend Jeff Perrin tweaked and expanded, and it became something they called Chainmail. Unlike most war games, where the miniatures on the board represented battle units, Gygax had each figure represent a character or a hero, and this hero could only be killed by several attacks. He also added a supplemental set of rules with magical fantasy elements— such as dragons, elves, wizards, some spells called fireballs.
0: So, with previously in war games, when you would control you, people, you would control like mult. It'd be like a a group of ten, and you would move that group of ten everywhere you go. And with chainmail, he made it so you control just one guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see.
1: Which is a big step towards yeah. Dungeons and Dragons because yeah. you play one character. He apparently was a huge Conan fan, which is why he added these fantasy elements, and he wanted to capture that spirit. Yeah, yeah. Conan the
0: Barbarian, days. not Conan O'Brien.
1: Thank I'd... you, Kyle. Thank
0: you. <laughs> For all those who were who were curious <laughs> or confused.
1: Sometimes they're confused, too. <laughs> they do.
0: They are. They are.
1: A lot of the history buffs at Gen Con and who he introduced the game to at first, when they first played Chainmail, they didn't like the fantasy elements. However, he did have one friend who had started a small gaming company called Gideon Games, and he offered to buy it. Chainmail was released, and it became that publisher's biggest hit. And while he wasn't making tons of money from it, he was making some, and Gygax started wondering if he could maybe make money doing this thing he loved.
0: It's funny reading about these uh, these guys inventing the war games and stuff in, in Minnesota and how, you know, a lot of them are selling these goofy renditions of war games out of their basements to mostly just the other people they play with in the community. Right. It's kind of punk rock. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like the local scene. It's like the war game scene and everyone's making their own game and selling them around and having game parties. I didn't think of it
1: that way, but that is really funny. Yeah, Yeah. you're selling it to your friends. Of course you are. Now we're going to introduce Dave Arneson. He's a history student who Gygax met at Gen Con, and Gygax was really impressed with his historical knowledge. He could just, like, name, like, how much gunpowder went into a rifle and that kind of (laughs) weird—not weird, but very specific facts. They ended up working together on a war game about the War of 1812 called Don't Give Up Ship. Arneson— was later impressed with Chainmail and modified it for his own gaming group. He called it Blackmoor, and he was inspired by Lord of the Rings. He took it underground. He said uh, a dungeon was contained so players just couldn't wander off, and also changed that the game ended. His group was having such a fun time playing the game that they didn't want it to stop. And he developed an experience system for characters where they earned points based on their successes in the game. And then when they hit a certain number of points, the players would level up and gain more abilities and powers.
0: This is pretty incredible, I think, because I'm trying to think about any video game that would have been out in the late 60s, early 70s, which there weren't any. Was there any concept of, quote, leveling up? In a game,
1: I don't think so. It's
0: such an inherent thing to games now that, of course, your character levels up and it's learns so some funny. new skills. That'd
1: be an interesting thing to research, actually.
0: And it sounds like this is kind of the start of leveling up. up,
1: which is yeah, which isn't every video game. Yeah. Um, to help guide this story, Arneson became more than just a ref- referee. In war games, like I mentioned before, you had a ref who got to kind of call the shots. Yeah. He became the game master.
0: And they ended up doing that in war games because too too many times there would be arguments over rule minutia and like what this canon could do versus that canon. So it was implemented that, all right, look, we'll have one impartial referee for every war game and that referee will make the the decisions on what is allowed and what isn't allowed.
1: Right, it makes total sense. That's yeah. why you need refs in sports games.
0: It's It just feels like a perfect storm of a bunch of different random things to come and create. <laughs> this Dungeons & Dragons Dungeons and game. Dragons, yeah.
1: So instead of, as the game master, instead of the referee, he set the scene and he guided the players through the world. He took the game to Gen Con in 1971 to run it with Gygax and some of his other friends there, and they loved it. Gygax was so impressed with what Arneson had done that he asked for a copy of the rules so he could continue to develop it. He also thought he could make the rules more cohesive. Gygax broke the characters down into classes and expanded the weapons that could be used, and he also gave the weapons different effects. The people Gygax tested his game with were one of his friends and his children, and he ended up picking the name Dungeons & Dragons for the game, Because it's the one his four-year-old liked the best.
0: Which is an awesome reason, and it's a great name. It's
1: a freaking great name. Once he got the game to a certain point, Gygax tried to get the biggest war game company to buy Dungeons & Dragons. But this company didn't understand the point of a game without a winner or a loser. He was unable to find a buyer, so in 1973, he formed a company called Tactical Studies Rules with a childhood friend. Important to note here, he didn't ask Arneson to be a part of it. He didn't think Arneson was business-minded. Arneson did continue to freelance and work on the game. He just wasn't a member of the company.
0: Yeah, from what I learned, they kind of workshopped two different versions. Arneson's Blackmoor and Gygax's uh, Greyhawk.
1: Right. The rules were $10, and the dice needed to play were an extra $3.50, and the company was run out of Gygax's basement with no marketing budget. (laughs) And it spread really quickly. Ten months after the first printing, TSR sold out and printed twice as many copies, then sold those out. And soon they are making updates to the system with Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, and also with a monster manual that gave descriptions and attributes to the monsters that these characters could fight in the game. They also sold prepackaged campaigns or prepackaged stories that the dungeon master could use uh, that were made by Arneson or Gygax.
0: So these things that they were selling were Arneson or Gygax would essentially write out a story or create a setting, and then you could buy that and use that as the basis. Right.
1: It would say, like, oh, and then you tell the characters to go here, and these are the people that they would meet here. Yeah, yeah. Real fast, I do want to mention that there was a fallout between Arneson and Gygax. Um, Arneson was just kind of—Arneson is the other creator of Dungeons & Dragons, the one who took Chainmail and expanded it into kind of more of a role-playing game instead of a battle game. Um, I don't really want to go into it. There's a lot of back and forth, and it's really complicated, and we could do a whole segment on the back and forth between them. They uh, eventually—there was eventually a reconciliation It's long and complicated. I honestly wasn't that interested in it and I feel like I don't really have time to go into
0: it. I I kinda I wish that it gets like a you know, a jobs and Wozniak kind of movie. (laughs) Like (laughs) I think it could be kind of interesting. The nerds would love it.
1: (laughs) I hope that there's like played by like Oscar Isaac (laughs) (laughs) and Brad Pitt or something like that.
0: People way too hot to be either gygax or (laughs) artisans.
1: So Anyway, the game is spreading, people are loving it, but of course it can't all be good. Dungeons & Dragons was viewed with suspicion right away. I read that in the 1970s, U.S. Army intelligence sent agents to infiltrate uh, Gen Con, believing they might be training anti-government insurgents. Yep. I also read that when they found out that these guys were harmless, they asked to join the game.
0: No, I, I read that, too, but I also read that it's an urban myth spread by Gygax's son, Ernie. Okay. But I I, I choose to believe that it's true. Right. Because it's so funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I read it in multiple places. Yeah. I'm like, mm, meh. But yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, And then there was a bunch more controversy, which did help elevate the name Dungeons and Dragons. And I think in the end did make it more popular, but it also uh, made it be viewed with more suspicion or uh, in society. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In 1979, a 16-year-old child prodigy, James Dallas Egbert III, disappeared from his room at Michigan State University. William Deere, the private detective hired by his parents to find him, believed that Dungeons & Dragons was the cause of his disappearance. He had actually gone in hiding under the utility tunnels, was depressed, and had substance abuse problems. But of course, it was Dungeons & Dragons. He later committed suicide, and many believed D&D had caused him to do it. This whole saga was turned into a TV movie in the early 80s starring Tom Hanks about a D&D-obsessed son that commits suicide. I
0: want to see that movie so bad. It's called Mazes and Monsters. <laughs> in
1: 1982, a high schooler, Irving Lee Poling, committed suicide. In the Washington Post article about this suicide episode, his mother said he had problems fitting in and that she believed Dungeons & Dragons had caused him to commit suicide. She sued the principal, who ran the campaign her son played, claiming the curse he placed upon Irving's character was real. Whoa. She also sued Gygax's company, TSR. Both cases were dismissed, but that didn't stop her from forming Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons or BAD. In 1983.
0: And this is the time of sad and mad and, you know, yeah. mothers against drunk driving. Yes.
1: She, she formed yeah, Bad. Yeah, so
0: she formed Bad.
1: Uh, bad said that Dungeons & Dragons used demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex, perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarianism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromancy, divination, and other teachings.
0: That is a long list. And you
1: know what? A lot of those things are in Dungeons & Dragons. It's true. Launched a campaign through conservative Christian outlets and mainstream media to let the world know how dangerous this game was. You could say that there was a... Moral panic against D&D. Now, some ideas in Dungeons & Dragons do go against Christian teachings. Witchcraft. Magic. But things got a little out of hand. The idea was spread around that if your character died in Dungeons & Dragons, that you, the player, were likely to commit suicide. This all led to Gygax going on 60 Minutes and calling the accusations a witch hunt.
0: Yeah. Gygax also was Christian. Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't—which is an interesting thing that, that um, you know, wasn't really brought up during the whole Moral Panic. Like, he wasn't practicing demonology or anything. No. He was just a goofy guy who liked fantasy—pulp fantasy adventures and war games.
1: Right. So I'm going to now turn it over to Kyle that you can take us from this satanic panic—
0: into D&D's bright future? Yeah. Why, yes, Claire, I totally can. So I'm going to start by reiterating some of the points you already went over just about TSR. Tactical studies rules, or TSR, was the original company founded by Gax, and it was the original original publisher of D&D. Um, but following that big boom they hit in the late 70s and early 80s, they started to have some problems of the financial variety. And part of that big D&D boom was this whole moral panic and outrage. D&D was in the news, and any press is good press, right? Well, because
1: I heard that originally it did help sell the game. Yeah,
0: it definitely did. And following that boom of D&D in the late 70s, the company started making more money than they could have ever imagined. But the problem was that most of the people that worked at TSR were strategy gamers, they weren't business people, Uh, and the company started making poor financial choices. So when Gygax started TSR to publish D&D, and it started to gain traction, he didn't really hire anyone who had ideas about business, he hired his war game buddies in Minnesota. He hired his bros. He hired his bros, Uh, and, and that started to cause some problems. A pair of brothers, Brian and Kevin Bloom, they had secretly amounted company shares equal, about equal to what Gygax owned, and they were steadily driving this company into the ground. (laughs) So TSR had over 70 vehicles owned or leased for business and they had made some really strange business acqu- acquisitions <laughs> in the early 80s when they started getting money because they were starting in 1979 they were making a million dollars in 1980 they had jumped up to 6 million that year yeah, and they just kept climbing buy and climbing some cool stuff. and that's exactly what happened they were like oh we should you know what do we do with all this they didn't know they they thought that oh we should uh, acquire some other companies that's supposed to be good right We should get a bunch of vehicles. That's cool. So one of the bizarre business acquisitions they did was they bought a knit-your-own-rug-kit company (laughs) as one of their more bizarre, outlandish, like... For funsies?
1: Or they thought it was...
0: Just, I guess, to, in quotes, diversify, they thought that owning another company that could make them money in the hobby industry, because that's at that time, that's what they thought of themselves. They Mm. were run out of hobby shops. What are the things do you see at hobby shops? Model trains, model airplanes, this sort of kit, that sort of kit. So they bought a knit-your-own-rug kit, thinking that this was really going to diversify their money.
1: That's not where I thought this was going. I thought they, like, invested in, like, finding buried treasure. Because that's what I assume a bunch (laughs) of, like, game nerds would want.
0: Well, they almost did something similarly stupid to that. But I don't know who. I couldn't find a name. Someone talked them off the edge. They were looking into purchasing a long-defunct railroad that connected their town with Chicago that had been closed for, you know, 70 years with this idea of, oh, we'll have this railroad that can shuttle us back and forth from Chicago. And it's about the amount of time that it would take to play a, a D&D adventure so we could have people on this railroad playing Dungeons and Dragons as they went back and forth between Minnesota and Chicago.
1: I think people would do it now.
0: People would maybe do it now. But at the time, it was wildly outlandish. <laughs> And by 1985, TSR had ousted Gygax in a somewhat hostile takeover. It's sometimes referred to as the ambush at Sheridan (laughs) Springs because it's a bunch of war gamers (laughs) from the company. Um, And the company had been taken over by Lorraine Williams, who was the former vice president. And she was also the granddaughter of the man who owned the characters to the Buck Rogers character, the Buck Rogers comics. Mm -hmm. Um, And this happened because... Gygax and the Bloom Brothers were constantly at odds. The Bloom Brothers had managed to amass enough shares in the company to about equal Gygax. And when Gygax finally got the board of directors to force them out, they sold all their shares to Lorraine Williams, the vice president knowing that she would now have majority stake in the company oh. and that her and Gygax didn't get along.
1: Does sound like an ambush.
0: Yeah. So Gygax was kicked out of the co- his company by Lorraine Williams, who had got enough um, shares by buying out the Bloom Brothers, who owned share- who were some of the starters in the company. And Lorraine Williams is kind of a controversial fig- figure in the D&D world. Um, she's not really well-liked by fans because she did kick Gygax out of the company, But she did manage to turn the company around for a number of years and she managed to stave off bankruptcy and cut back on some of that ridiculous spending like 70 vehicles and no, we're not going to acquire rug companies anymore. That's that's silly. But she wasn't a gamer and she didn't consider herself a gamer and thought the whole thing was kind of silly, which, you know, doesn't really like do much for fans. Now, even though Lorraine Williams did manage to save off bankruptcy, TSR was kind of doomed to fail. Uh, The writing was on the wall all the way back to her her hostile takeover of the company. Her ambush. Her ambush at Sheridan Springs.
1: I will only refer to it as that (laughs) from now on.
0: And um, part of the reason for this was no one really understood how to market or sell their game, especially not Lorraine Williams, who was not a gamer. she wasn't a strategy gamer, she wasn't a, a tabletop role play gamer. She
1: didn't go to Gen con.
0: She didn't go to Gen Con. They didn't really know what they had. TSR, they released a new edition of Dungeons and Dragons. So a new a new book of rules and characters and classes it was known as second edition. and this did see this was seen as an improvement over the older version of the Mm -hmm. game. It was seen as more accessible than the previous version. But unfortunately, uh, the second edition rules did annoy about as many players as they pleased, Uh, mostly because the amount of revision and correction was not that extensive. And it might have been just as easily done in some sort of supplement rather than making a whole new edition of -hmm. the game for everyone to buy. So instead of kind of the way we would think of it now, instead of patching the old game, They just made a new game and released it. And some people were like, oh, I got to buy this again. Yeah, so for many players, 2nd Edition smacked of forcing players to pay for books that they really didn't need. And it especially hurt old Dungeons & Dragons players when TSR announced that henceforth 2nd Edition... Dungeons & Dragons would be the only D&D that TSR would support. They were not making anything for the old edition. It is all just second edition now.
1: Yeah, that sounds like what video game companies
0: do. It is. It is. To be fair, that is what video video game companies do now. Now, in the late 80s, TSR also started expanding into new worlds. Um, They had seen some success with the release of different campaign settings. Like we said before, these pre-built fantasy worlds with histories and maps... And non-player characters already in there that a dungeon master needs to just read, and then they have a whole world that they can set their game in. This made running the game as a dungeon master a bit easier, and it added depth to the world that the players inhabited, so it made it more fun for the players. They also used these new fantasy worlds to launch fantasy book series that took place in said worlds. The Dragonlance books. Yeah. Well, yeah which I, I know you read, Claire. Yeah, they're, I was, not, they're not good. They're not good. But they were they were made as a fantasy series for the Dragonlance campaign setting, which came out in uh, the late 80s for Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Mm, and they, they read like they came out in the late 80s. They
0: sure do. <laughs> but they were also inspired by a campaign that mm-hmm. someone at the company had put together. <laughs> right. Right as are the Forgotten Realms um, and the other books of R.A. Salvatore and his character Drizzt Do'Urden. Uh, the Forgotten Realms books are, it's a famous a famous d campaign setting, but it's also a famous setting for a, a long-running series of successful of books them, yeah. by R.A. Salvatore, yeah. It's about a, a dark elf and kind of his adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Other campaign settings launched around this time were the gothic vampire-inspired Ravenloft the post-apocalyptic dark sun, and the extremely avant-garde planescape. A little little freaky, a little sci-fi
1: almost. Yeah, you are selling me.
0: I'm selling it, man. (laughs) (laughs) Now, these settings did help sales from a superficial point of view. And this is something that was part of the problem with they didn't know really how to sell what they had. Lorraine Williams wasn't a gamer. She didn't really know what it was that well.
1: And she wasn't hiring a team that and knew how to do
0: it? The management at at uh, TSR after Gygax was kicked out was less and less war gamers, which mm-hmm. in some ways was good. They weren't acquiring stupid businesses and buying cars, but in other ways was bad because the people who came in to manage... They really didn't know what they they were selling. They didn't talk the language of the (laughs) fans. Yeah, exactly. Now, these new settings, they were selling and they were helping from a superficial point of view, but they also set up the foundation for the eventual undermining of the brand Dungeons & Dragons. Now, the number of players wasn't really increasing in any real way, and players stopped identifying as D&D players. Instead Instead of playing Dungeons & Dragons you played Ravenloft, which is one of the campaign settings, or you played the Forgotten Realms. And as expansions and companion books came out for those individual settings, it made it harder and harder to have a character in one that you could bring over to another. So if if we, Claire, if you and I are playing in Ravenloft with mm. our characters and we make it to level 10 and James is like, oh, I'm doing a game in Forgotten Realms, do you want to come bring your characters over to me and play... If we had gotten the expansion books and had been playing these characters for a long time, they weren't compatible anymore.
1: Like, mm. Ra- it
0: was almost a different game with different mechanics, the different campaign settings. It's like settings. the Jets
1: and the Sharks. You couldn't put them together. You
0: couldn't put them together. It, it diluted the brand. You, you know, all of these were technically Dungeons and Dragons, but they were all different. And none of these settings were expanding the audience of Dungeons and Dragons. Also, by putting out a lot of product lines, instead of supporting the main Dungeons & Dragons line, it really fragmented the marketplace. The same audience was giving the same amount of money to TSR every year, um, but but now TSR had taken on the financial burden of creating and producing and supporting hundreds of products, you know?
1: That makes so much
0: sense. So the general audience for Dungeons & Dragons isn't really getting bigger, they're not have, getting new players. They're not getting but new they players. They have to put out more material. They've put more material for all these different campaign settings.
1: I see how why they did what they did and I see why it was a bad idea, but I see why you
0: wouldn't see that in the moment. Initially, yeah, yeah cuz they you don't really know what you have at that time. Also, other new competitors were starting to rise up and challenge D&D's hegemony of the tabletop role-playing marketplace. Companies like White Wolf who created the role-playing game Vampire: The Masquerade I don't. Did you ever hear Vampire the Masquerade? No. The really weird kids in my high school played it. It was almost LARPing, like it was a little more like in person, where you kind of pretended you were a vampire, and it was very, it was fairly politically driven. But it was also Vampire the Masquerade was also what the Ravenloft D and D setting was attempting to mimic. Okay. So they had made that D and D setting because this Vampire the Masquerade came out, and they were like, "Oh, we gotta have like a vampire thing uh, because people are into vampires, and this is selling really well." But the biggest competitor in the tabletop marketplace came not from another RPG, per se, but from a silly fantasy card game created by a little company from Washington State.
1: (laughs) We did an episode on it.
0: We sure did. Magic the Gathering was dominating the market in the 90s, and the success of Wizards of the Coast, which was the company that made Magic the Gathering, was making TSR go a little crazy.
1: And they started off as a role-playing company.
0: They did. They were Dungeons & Dragons fans, and they were like, oh, this is so cool. We want to make something like that, or we want to make something fantasy-inspired. I think
1: TSR sued them at one point.
0: TSR did sue them. That's part of the TSR crazy. As Magic the Gathering was growing by leaps and bounds and Wizards of the Coast was growing by leaps and bounds, TSR and Dungeons and & Dragons started getting paranoid that they were going to get eaten, so they just they started lashing out. They attempted their own D&D card game, which was to compete with Magic the Gathering. Um, And even though that had a solid start, it ended up crashing and burning due to lack of support and market saturation. They just put it out everywhere, and not enough people were buying it. Um, They also attempted a a tabletop dice game similar to Magic the Gathering that was expensive and didn't sell well. So that's Mm -hmm. the thing. They were starting all these different product lines that they couldn't support and that they didn't really have an audience for. Right. So Lorraine Williams was seeing the end of TSR on the horizon, and instead of trying to calmly steer the ship in a new direction, her and the company started just attacking everyone and everything around them. The company began to ruthlessly enforce its own copyrights, along with a few it didn't even have, so they, they claimed that nobody could use the word dragon. They were trying to claim copyright on the word dragon, which of course was dismissed. <laughs> Um, and it also became incredibly hostile to everyone, especially its fans. So in the 90s, as the Internet was coming together, there wasn't a lot to do on the Internet in the 90s, but there were things called message boards and chat rooms. And there were all these Dungeons & Dragons chat rooms. It was a place where nerds gathered. And and Dungeons and & Dragons, they, the players naturally brought their chosen hobby online. TSR followed them online. They issued dozens of cease and desist orders to shut down these fan sites. They were like, no, mm-hmm. no, no, Dungeons Dragon. Dragons. Like, you, you have to give us money if you're going to start any of this stuff. Um, wow. And the company even tried to prevent D&D fans from discussing the game in chat rooms and on message boards. Uh, and fans of the game started started referring to TSR derisively as they sue regularly <laughs> as TSR. That's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a mess. So all this market saturation and attempt at card games and multiple lines of products and books would finally come to a head in 1996. And I want to read a little story. This is from Ben Riggs um, on the Geek and Sundry site, writing about the death and rebirth of D&D. This is what eventually killed D&D, used, and this is crazy.
1: I used some of the early part of his article yeah. for my research. So This is the second part ben of Ben Riggs, his article. thank you for this yeah, article. Yeah,
0: Ben Riggs, you're awesome. So this is according to Ben Riggs. They found a unique but ultimately unsound method of funding their company. This is TSR. Random House, TSR's distributor, paid them for product not when it was sold to bookstores, but when it arrived at Random House's warehouses. Therefore, if TSR shipped a lot of product, Random House would pay them for it. Yes, Random House could return product for a refund when sales were good. This wasn't a problem. This money could then be used to finance things like a CD-ROM of the D&D rules. This structure would lead to overprinting and TSR failing to pay their printer. Because TSR's debt to their printer eventually became quite substantial, the company signed a contract agreeing to only print books with that printer. The printer, having a monopoly now on TSR's business, began to increase their rates. In 1996, Random House returned millions of dollars uh, worth of TSR products. 30 employees were let go from TSR right before Christmas in the new year. Um, the printer announced they would not publish any more TSR products until they received payment on their debt. So TSR would get money when Random House, not when Random House sold their products, but when Random House just got them at their warehouse.
1: Right, but Random House could return it.
0: Random House could return it. And TSR owed so much money to their printer that they had to use their only their printer, and their printer was jacking the rates up. So when they had a bunch of money to pay their printer because they'd just given a bunch of product to Random House, that product got returned, and they now owed both Random House and their printer millions of dollars. So TSR was doomed and forced to sell, and wouldn't you know it, who was right there waiting to pick up the pieces of the company that made the game that inspired their own hugely successful tabletop game, Wizards of the Coast. Um, When Wizards of the Coast bought TSR, they inherited a large staff of talented but fatigued and scared designers. Wizards of the Coast assured the rank-and-file employees that there would be space for them at Wizards of the Coast. The same, however, was not true for TSR's management. The higher-ups and management in TSR were not offered packages to stay on board, but most of the entire rank-and-file of TSR were. So 85% of TSR employees agreed to relocate from Minnesota, where the offices were, to Seattle and were offered uh, resettlement packages for moving. One TSR employee said Wizards was doing everything but putting them on their backs and carrying them to help with the move to Seattle. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so it, it was sad for Dungeons and Dragons, but it did have does have kind of a happy ending when Wizards of the Coast took over, which people were nervous about. You know, they don't know you don't know what's gonna happen when a right. company buys you. But I think it's funny that they jettisoned all the management but kept the designers and right. talent. Um, So Wizards of the Coast would oversee the release of four more editions of of Dungeons & Dragons, all liked or disliked for various reasons, and the most recent edition, the 5th edition, or 5e, has been the best-selling edition of D&D ever. And I want to talk a little bit about what Wizards of the Coast did real quick kind of in response to TSR. Not even in response, but just to go about the business in the opposite way. So TSR was suing everybody, like we just saw. Mm-hmm. Like, no Dungeons and Dragons, no Dungeons & Dragons. Take that down, take that down. What Wizards of the Coast did when they were designing their first version of the game was do something called an open gaming license. So they designed their their um their game engine, essentially, their game mechanic with the D20 and how dungeons and dragons would work with rolling dice. And instead of keeping that for themselves and suing anyone who tried to emulate it a little bit, they said, "Hey everybody, this is for anyone can use this. All you publishers out there, if you want to publish games, if you want to publish role-playing games, you're free to use our license. It's totally free." Cuz their idea was that whatever helped keep uh, the role-playing game system all the same so people could jump between different games and it would be basically the same, would help the industry in general. Yeah,
1: and they needed more players. And they
0: needed more players. So,
1: so smart.
0: Yeah, and essentially what they also did was by by granting permission for anyone to use their, their D20 system, their dice system for, for the game, they made all these companies sprout up to try and make supplements for D&D, and it helped the industry as a whole for the most part. Um, and I just want to mention that out, or mention that uh, there's a funny bit. Maybe we'll get into it later. But that's my segment so that's far. So
1: interesting, Kyle. <laughs> Super cool.
0: Yes, I thought it was fascinating as well.
1: Um, wow. All right. Well, let's get into our opinions real fast now. For um, those who don't know, and are just listening to this episode, we do our episodes in pairing, pairings. Excuse me. So we paired Dungeons and Dragons with one of the books that is kind of used in the fantasy element of Dungeons and Dragons called Three Hearts and Three Lions. So we're gonna start off by talking about how the two of them compare. Do they compare?
0: I mean you can definitely see the influence of Three Hearts and Three Lions Mm -hmm. in Dungeons and Dragons. Not so much in mechanics though. Three Hearts and Three Lines isn't of, like a the war troll game. Book.
1: Regenerating.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. There
1: but you can see when you're reading Three Hearts and Three Lines, it's so obvious that this is a pre Dungeons and Dragons book. Yeah. Um, and you if you know you would think either it was based on Dungeons and Dragons or Dungeons and Dragons is based on yeah. it.
0: They have a very similar flavor.
1: Yes. And we linked them because in the book in the Dungeons and Dragons manual, Three Hearts and Three Lions is stated as one of its influences. Yes. Did it make sense to link them?
0: Of course it did.
1: Absolutely. How are our views changed on either of these topics having done this research?
0: Um, you know what? I I I enjoyed Three Hearts and Three Lions. I didn't appreciate it as much until I dug more into D&D, especially learning more about the first edition of D&D. It was a fun, silly little romp, but I I, I understand more of Three Hearts and Three Lions as, like, a formative work now, mm-hmm. having done this research.
1: Yeah. I'm going to say I'm right there with you. I would never have read it if not for the podcast, but I'm really happy I have. And I think it's fun to—I mean, we do this in our podcast—to go back and read early pieces of fantasy and then just see how it's evolved. Yeah, um, and I'm really happy I did read it, and I'm happy I know who Paul Anderson is Me because too. he was a very prolific science fiction writer who just never quite made it into the like famous tier.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it was funny reading about the specifically the first like edition of Dungeons and & Dragons and Gary Gygax forming it, basing it off of chainmail, where you got to control a medieval knight, mm-hmm. and just like learning more about that. And how that relates to the main character Holger in Three Hearts and Three Lions was interesting, and it did make me appreciate it a little more. Three Hearts and Three Lions was a fun romp. I think Holger was the worst character in the book, and he's the right. main character. But you can kind of see the direct links, I think, between Holger and the uh, Gary Gygax's game Chainmail, of just like and you know Gary Gygax reading this book, really enjoying it, playing these war games, thinking, you know what. I just want to be one of these knights instead right. of controlling all the troops them. And let's add these
1: fantasy elements to yeah. it, too, and make it more fun. Yeah, let's add... Or add some spice. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed... This is my research, so good thing I enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning about where the fantasy was, or where the world of fantasy was and what was being written when Dungeons & Dragons was being written. Yeah. And it makes so much sense. I mean, obviously, the game has evolved a lot since then, but like I think you were telling me, and I didn't actually know this until you mentioned it a couple of days ago, that women used to have different stats than the men in Dungeons yeah. and Dragons, yeah. and fantasy was this very male-dominated field back then. Um, and it's interesting to read something like Three Hearts and Three Lines, which is just a very macho male story of, you know, riding in and saving the day, yeah. you know, with this damsel, but. Is accompanying me. Yeah. Um. And then to think about Dungeons and Dragons and the people who were playing it, you know, early on, and I'm sure some women were playing it as well, but it, it does, it did feel like it was very geared towards the male. Yeah.
0: And that's what's when you talk about Gary Gygax first testing it, he's testing it with his friend, and his son, and his daughter. So you would think that from its inception, hopefully there'd be less of that sexism. But it definitely does appear.
1: I also think it's he's testing it with his daughter. But who are his friends playing it? That's true. And yeah, this is your daughter, but you know. Yeah, yeah. The girl are the girlfriends there, are the wives there? I mean, H. G. Wells. It talks about you know when I was reading about him developing war games, how the women walked in and ruined their fun because they <laughs> thought it was silly. Now, granted, if you see two grown men playing with like with battle figures, yes, yes, that's silly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if it's your husband, you might worry. Like, what are you doing right now? Yeah. yeah. Didn't I tell you to do the dishes? Yeah. Now you're just sitting, like, <laughs> <laughs> shooting cannons with your friend? Yeah. An imaginary cannon. Um, in an
0: imaginary world? Okay. Okay, Wells. <laughs> yeah, This and this also plays into something I didn't get to, get to, but I'm glad I can mention it now. When Wizards of the Coast did their open gaming license and they released the D20 system for everybody to publish anything they wanted, um, And this was in 1999. In 2003, this company called Valor Project, they published the Book of Erotic Fantasy, which was a supplement for Dungeons & Dragons that uses the D20 system and the open gaming license system that Wizards had released to everybody. And when that happened, Wizards of the Coast was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And they they came down hard on it and they changed the D20 open license to so that it it it's whatever's published under that is required to meet, quote, community standards of decency. So they did kind of shut it down. But that also affected the public's view of them, because now all these publishers were like, oh, wait, so Wizards of the Coast can just shut down this open system if they feel like they don't right. like what we're putting out. At that, but at the same time, someone was publishing a book of erotic fantasy and putting Wizards of the Ghost's like name and system on right. it, and they weren't happy about these
1: that. These liberal nerds ruining all the fun. I know that's what I hear they that's, do. Yep, yep. Take away the good times. Yep. Um, another question that we ask in our combining of segments: Would we recommend consuming these two pieces together?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, I think. If you play Dungeons & Dragons, it's cool to go back and and read some of the formative works that Mm -hmm. created it. And and Three Hearts and Three Lines is such a breeze, too. It's quick. It's a silly, fun romp. It's easy. And I feel like it makes me appreciate the game more.
1: Yeah, I think if you're really into Dungeons & Dragons, it's fun to go back and, like you just said, read the early works. It makes me want to read Conan.
0: Yeah, me too. You know who else wrote Conan books? Robert Jordan who wrote The Wheel of Time, which is one of my, like, guilty pleasure favorite series.
1: Yeah. I mean, Conan was really um, pivotal, Yeah, I think. Yeah. As one of those sword and sorcery early books. And the more we do our research, the more...
0: It comes up. It
1: comes up. And even though I feel like it's not a huge part of our culture now, it kind of is. It kind of is. so much was based on it. Do we have any more thoughts on either Three Hearts and Three Lines or Dungeons and Dragons? I mean... I have so many thoughts on Dungeons & Dragons. I, I don't know how many of them are relevant.
0: Claire plays two games of Dungeons & Dragons. I do. One of
1: them you, Dungeon Master.
0: And I play one game and Dungeon Master another. <laughs> um, so we, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Dungeons and & Dragons and how it is. It's kind of in a renaissance now. Mm-hmm. And I I watched a, a Google talk by this author, David Uwalt, And this was in 2013. This was before the fifth edition of Dungeons & Dragons had released. The fifth edition came out the next year in 2014 this talk was 2013 and david uwalt in this talk he he wrote a book called of dice and men the story of dungeons and dragons and he's talk he, towards the end of the talk he talks about how he thinks dungeons and dragons is going to take off soon because something called twitch has started where people can watch you play games and he thinks that when people are able to watch someone play dungeons and dragons it's going to make them want to play it and also, more importantly, it's going to take down the barrier of learning rules. I know a lot of, I was trepidatious to start playing this game because I was like, oh, it's really complicated, right? It's a ton of rules. And then I, I, I started watching a stream where people play Dungeons and Dragons, and I started learning the rules super easily. And he compares it to watching basketball or watching baseball. He's like, kids don't learn the rules of baseball or basketball by picking up the handbook to baseball and basketball and reading it. They learn it by watching it.
1: So true. And there's podcasts that play D&D all over the place. And when I try and introduce people to Dungeons and Dragons, which I have to say, it's going through a renaissance, but people are very trepidatious about it. They still are. Um, I say, well, you know, watch this stream or listen to this podcast, which is still scary for a lot of people. But I feel like it makes it, if you do, you can see how much fun it is. I think it's one of the best games ever made. It's so much fun. I think so, too. It's. I mean, it's talk about using your imagination. And it's so funny to me this whole scare about Dungeons and Dragons. And I am sure there are people who bring it to bad places. I'm sure that there are people who use rape. Who you know do use suicide. I'm sure there are people who do horrible things in the campaign. But it's also the wonderful thing about it is that there's all this talk about kids being on their screens too much. And I mean, maybe that's true. I feel like the results aren't in yet. Yeah. That we're on our screens too much, that we don't use our imaginations. And Dungeons & Dragons is 100% in the imagination and making up a story as you go and reacting to things that happen to you in the moment, which I think is missing from a lot of the media that we interact with today.
0: Definitely. So
1: I feel like that whole, like, run outside and play with a ball. Dungeons and Dragons is in a sense, you know, it's it's not playing with the ball and it's not you can play it outside, but you don't have to. But it's also just interacting with people.
0: Yeah, in a way that you don't normally. In a way that in video games now you can interact with people in your in World of Warcraft, but it's a different interaction than you're going to have when you're looking at someone's face whether it's through Skype playing Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. with friends through Skype or if you're all at at someone's at house a at a table. Top at a tabletop looking at your friend you know looking across the way at your friend and I think uh, I think it does bring back more empathy and stuff to games and it's something that that a lot of online games uh, I think are missing and
1: consequences to your actions
0: thank you all so much for listening once again I'm Kyle Willoughby
1: and I am Claire
0: White and we are Dragons Sexy Robots and Adventures in Art Manual feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find links to all of our social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, on our website at DSRApodcast.com. I can be found on Twitter at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303.
1: I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E.
0: And you can find our producer, James, at James Fowey Jr. That's James Fowey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about Dungeons and Dragons on our social media, where we're going to post links to the articles we used in our show. Our producer is a devious cleric of, of Talos named Inaluki. Our logo was done by the friendly, but a little suspicious, half rogue, Chickory Morning did. And our theme was composed by the brusque, outrageous, dwarven fighter, Putzi Deldicker. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks with the Lord of the Rings films.